You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week we are talking large format land development. We've never spoken about this before. We've obviously spoken about triplexes, duplexes, corner lot subdivisions. But today I've got Chris Bitmead in from Tabeck, a civil engineer. They focus on this every day. And when we're talking about large format, I'm talking 20, 30, 40, 400 lots in a row, a new estate, and certainly the sort of development where you probably need to put in a gazetted road. That's how you would probably characterize the difference between what we've spoken about before in terms of subdivision and land development, which we're speaking to Chris about today. Chris, thanks for so much for coming in. My pleasure, Trent. Good to be here. Perth is a city that is built on land development, isn't it? From the last decades to come, all the suburbs, even places like Balcatta and Tewitt Hill, places we consider to be inner city suburbs these days, they were once farmland and, and now they are very old established suburbs. And to, to the places we've got today like Byford and Alcamos and Averley, it seems to roll on and you're a big part of it. We've been in the game for a long time, myself over 30 years, hence the grey hair. It's a great industry to be in because we get to create communities and places where people spend their lives living. So that's a very satisfying part of what we do. Today we're going to talk about the nuts and bolts, but I thought just like a suburb spotlight, which a lot of the listeners will know we do, we start with a bit of history. Can I ask you, how has the art of land development in terms of the way our communities are built how has it changed from when you started, which I'm guessing even before you started, you know, it was much more of a metric system like the avenues you see down Beaufort Street and then it moved to a lot of cul-de-sacs and now we've got a lot more master planning. Can you give us a bit more detail about how it's progressed over time and where it's going? Sure. Obviously, design standards and things like cul-de-sacs come and go uh, as different sort of flavours uh, of, of design. But in terms of the process here in Perth, it used to very much be that yeah, if you wanted to subdivide some land, you'd get a surveyor involved and they'd basically carve up your land into, into blocks and show where the roads would be. And then you paid the local roads board, which was usually the local authority of the day. You'd pay them an amount of money and they'd go and build the roads. And then Water Corporation would come in and they'd build the sewer and the water. That's very uh, convenient, letting them yeah, do the work, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, then oh, you paid. <laughs> yeah. So the developer always pays. But it was very much a case of when the land was subdivided, there really wasn't anything there. And the roads got put in as people built houses and developed a need for the houses and the roads and infrastructure to follow up with that. The difference nowadays is that the way the land is developed is that the, the developer, and that could be a private developer or it could be a uh, one of the government agency could be developers. Like development WA, Land Corp. Could be one of them, yep, yep. yep. So it could be one of them. Uh, they're basically responsible for everything nowadays. So the process is much the same as a small two or three lot subdivision. You apply for us to the WA Planning Commission for an approval to subdivide the land. Going through, the, oh, and I won't talk through the planning processes, but because uh, we're going to focus on the important engineering stuff today. That's right. But it can look. It can take years. Is what is probably the theme this time frame. It can give me very efficient and it might just be a very big subdivision application with WAPC but it may also include scheme amendments structure plans and then finally years later get into that subdivision application very much so so and as part of that planning approval process you know we would provide engineering to support for that so you know before a land is even rezoned it needs to be demonstrated that land can be adequately serviced you know with you know, sewer water power drainage is an important issue in particularly in areas of high groundwater these uh, are project killers aren't they 
if you can't if you don't have the the height or the depth just to get a sewer to some part of your subdivision game over absolutely absolutely and and or you need to work out a strategy of how you can make it work and that's uh you know that's where companies like us uh, come in that, that can help you out and you we deal with the organizations like the water corporation in resolving those servicing matters so it can be a, a game breaker in, in some instances or in some in some instances it might just simply be too expensive to get those services you know to the land in which case the land gets uh, bypassed for another five, 10, 15 years until the services are bought closer to the land, which makes it more economical to service that land, or until the land values increase to the point where it can then cover the cost of these infrastructure extensions. That process of initially doing due diligence, I think, is one that you would advise doing for anyone doing even a house behind a house, retain and split, let alone land development obviously land development is so much more intense and you guys as civil engineers are a big part of assisting with the cost opinions the cost estimates of what that land development cost will be and look we don't want to sugarcoat it here it can run into the millions of dollars we're not talking about uh, extending out a fifty thousand dollar corner lot split and suddenly it's maybe a hundred and fifty two hundred thousand dollars for a 30 lot subdivision uh, can you give us some flavor as to what these land developments in hard cash costs once you've purchased a site can actually cost oh it's, it's a significant sum of money and quite often the you know the, the cost of the the servicing of land will exceed the cost of acquisition of that land to start with which so. is not something that you normally expect to see in the small scale no, you wouldn't. But for larger subdivisions, your, your land cost is generally less on a square metre basis because you then have to go and put a lot more money into providing the servicing. I mean, for instance, for a little simple two-lot subdivision, it's very rare that you even have to touch the road that the property fronts onto, whereas quite often with, with these big large greenfield developments, there is no roads. So yeah, all that infrastructure that might be available for the small-lot subdivisions, that's not there for these, uh, for these larger subdivisions. So you physically have to go and construct all that and then part of the earlier due diligence work is trying to anticipate what that might cost and that's a large part of what we do when we're looking at or assisting our clients in evaluating land for subdivision. Let's talk about those cost buckets. So obviously we've got the cost for uh, demolition, we've got the cost for clearing and cutting and filling the land to get it nice and flat, we've got the cost for replacing a lot of the topsoil as well to get that nice yellow sand or grey sand with the hydro mulch that most of us would see these days. You've got massive retaining costs often in a lot of areas too. From there, you'd obviously have geotechnical reports that you have to get done, environmental reports. If you're knocking down trees, there might be certain uh, species, flora and fauna you have to uh, look after. What about the cost of building an actual road? I think so many people the first thing that starts scratching their head about is what does it cost to build a road per meter? What things do we have to put in? What are the physical cost items that a meter of road, Chris, would include? So what I what I ask people to look at is is that you know you go and stand on a on a farmer's paddock on a land that might be subdivided and there's nothing there. You have to have a look at okay yeah in in two years time or whatever time period in front of that once that land subdivided yeah mums and dads and and that want to come and build a house on a, on a block of land they expect all those services to be there and there's a lot of work that goes into into getting that aside from the uh, the planning approvals process the physical work that's required to service that land and we need to bear in mind that there's no two 
parcels of land are the same. It's not like a three-lot subdivision where you're, you're subdividing you know, number three Apple Road and number seven Apple Road. They're basically the same. Each development site, particularly larger development site, is unique and has its own characteristics. So what we need to do as part of the construction of the subdivision is go through a process where we design all the earthworks for the subdivision because we're in Perth, a nice sandy coastal plain in most instances. Where well, our, you'd hope, wouldn't you? You'd probably <laughs> stay away from it if it wasn't. Oh, well, potentially, not not necessarily, because it all comes down to cost. And whether your cost of development can be encapsulated in the cost that you want to be able to sell your land for. Or mitigated uh, by it. Yeah. I, I, feel, I think it's a very brave man who goes and develops out in the close to the hills around Hazelmere and South Guildford and these sort of areas where there's clearly a lot of hard clay underground. There's some different issues there, but whilst those areas might have their issues in terms of ground conditions, they may have less issues in other areas. So for larger subdivisions, there's no cookie cutter. Each site has to be looked at individually on its merits. Let's go back to that road. Fundamentally, one of the big understanding differences between people who are doing subdivisions of individual lots or a couple of lots together where there are no gazetted roads coming out at the end is that they're generally doing a survey strata development where you wouldn't have to provide a lot of these services underground that run through. We're talking about streetlights, we're talking about power runs, sewerage runs, drainage runs, water reticulation and obviously the physical construction of the road and footpaths and curbs and drainage grates as well. All those things are massive costs, aren't they? Oh, they, they are. And, and th- there's some consistency across different jobs in terms of, you know, like square metres of asphalt for your roads or a lineal metre of curbs. You can measure that quite easily and they're consistent. It's what happens underneath that c- that can change significantly the cost of installation. For instance, if you've got a, a gently sloping site where your gravity services like sewers and drainage can generally follow the contour of the land, they don't need to get too deep. And if they're in sandy material, that can generally be fairly cheap to install. But if you've got a large flat site with high groundwater, then the cost of that same diameter pipe increases significantly because in a flat site, it gets deeper as you get further away from the upstream end of the pipe. And it also potentially gets into some dewatering costs where you actually have to locally lower the groundwater while you're installing it. So that same 300 millimeter diameter drainage pipe doesn't cost the same for every subdivision or for every location because the ground conditions dictate the difference in costs and that's where you need to get advice from an engineer or or someone experienced in the construction of subdivisions as it applies to your particular site. When it comes to the management of these, a small subdivision would normally be managed either by an owner having a crack himself or a surveyor project manager who has got experience in this space and the contacts to do the small amount of civil works required. When it comes to the larger land format, it's the civil engineer that gets involved on the project management, like yourself, isn't it? Yes, it does. There's a lot more cost involved in the construction works and a lot more services. So if you're doing a little two-lot subdivision where you're not building any roads and you're doing a little internal sewer junction and extending a sewer maybe up a battle axe or something or other, you can go to your almost your local plumber and do that. Once you get into bigger subdivisions, you're talking about specialised contractors that do that sort of work. And whereas on a small subdivision, you can split that work up and you know, get the plumber to come in independently to the guy that's going to hook the power up and stuff like that. For a larger subdivision, there's a lot more coordination between all the the services that need to be installed. Why is that? Simply because if you were to organise, say, a plumber or a civil works contractor to install your drainage pipes, you really want that same contractor to be installing your sewer pipes, ideally 
the power and the communications pipes, the gas pipes and all that sort of stuff. So it's all coordinated. Is that so that we're not continually redigging the same trench Correct. or for other reasons? No, so you're not continuously digging the same trench and, okay. and you're not paying for five trench excavations, you're paying for coordinating so that you can get less trench excavations in. Do you guys as civil engineers also have to draw, I guess, a whole bunch of 3D plans and maps to be able to direct these guys where all these services have to go rather than on the smaller scale, we sort of just point our finger and say, yeah, look, we have to run it from the dome to the house there, you know, put it around the driveway and you'll all be good. Yeah, I guess no, there's a lot more specifics when it comes to this. Oh, very much so. So the typical process for a larger subdivision would be you don't just sort of, <clears throat> you know, like I say, ring up your plumber and get him to come out and give you a quote and point A to B. We have to prepare plans and lodge them to the various authorities for approval to make sure that it meets in with their larger scale planning for areas. So, for instance, you know, like for water and for sewer, we'd need to lodge those with Water Corporation, uh, get approval. And then those plans would then get used and you'd send those plans along with your other roads, drainage, earthworks, drawings out to contractors for pricing. So they can actually price up the works and give you uh, or give the owner a, a lump sum price for construction so that at that time there's certainty for the developer moving forward on what it's actually going to cost to build the subdivision. When we think about getting those approvals, Western Power, Water Corp, I guess MBN Co gets involved for telecommunications as well these days. One of the bigger reasons we're getting approval from these guys is because although we are paying for the installation, they will eventually be the asset owners, won't they? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much all the assets the developer installs in the ground gets handed over to someone. Yeah, it's a great deal for us, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> we pay for it and they get it for free. Exactly, exactly. But at least that means they're maintaining it from that point on as well, aren't they? They, they are, that's right. So yeah, once the works are complete, inspections are carried out with, with the various service authorities. And at that time, if the works have all been constructed in accordance with their requirements, then they then become the owner of those assets. Uh, once we get into these sort of spaces where we're, I guess, more than five lots, we're subdividing. The councils start to sting us with a couple of extra costs, don't they? Development contributions and also public open space. The, can, you, can you talk to those? Yeah, sure. They, they can do. There's generally a requirement for, for larger subdivisions for developers to provide 10% of their land as public open space or, or a cash-in lieu. It used to be that the developers would just provide the land. A trend over the last 15 years and how things evolved is, is developers have been you know, they want to make their estates look nice, so they spend money on beautifying their, their public open spaces. And in some instances, they're spending multiple millions of dollars on playgrounds and barbecues and shelters and that, so that the community has a bit of a hub to go to. So yeah, that's probably more the rule now rather than the exception, mm -hmm. is that you know, the, these POS enhancement works are done. There's a level of expectation by lot, uh, lot purchases you know, when they're going into a new community, that there's facilities there for them to be able to, to it's part use. part of the sales pitch, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I guess mm -hmm. the money that is spent by the developer on the swing set, on the barbecue, comes off the costs they're expected to pay towards developer contributions. And developer contributions don't apply to all subdivisions, so they only apply to, to areas generally where there's some fragmented land ownership, where there's a bunch of sort of you know, one to two hectare lots that are amalgamated and form part of a larger subdivision. So the idea of these special area contributions 
are to try and even out some of the bigger infrastructure costs for the areas so that they're not all captured by one or two of the small landowners in there, but they're shared amongst the, the broader sort of landowners. And, and let's explain that. So some of the costs they were talking about would be the installation of new sewer, of new power, those sort of things. What you're explaining is that if the first guy comes in and starts doing the development at that point, first junction to where the existing sewer is or the existing power they'll cop a massive part massive brunt of those costs but the guy at the end eventually develops he might not have a lot of cost at all or vice versa the guy at the end might have all the costs because they have to run it all the way but the guys in along the way don't have to pay much because the guy at the end has already sent the sewer 500 meters down the road so the idea of the developer contributions is that everyone has to pay an equal share of all the infrastructure that's being installed by either a developer or council. For the most part, developer contributions relate to things like uh, roads, drainage, and not all roads and drainage, but key roads and drainage within a particular area, the acquisition of public open space, and the the betterment of that public open space. So they're probably the key things where you've got areas of fragmented land ownership. Things like sewer and services it's pretty much a every man for himself type scenario. So in some areas where there is fragmented ownership, the lot owners themselves or the people who are subdividing the land sometimes get together and they work out their own cost sharing arrangement. But things like sewer and water extensions wouldn't normally form part of a developer contribution scheme. So let's double back to that transition we've had over time because I think we've digressed a little bit about the nerdy points of cost and inclusions that we easily move on to when we chat, Chris. The transition over time about how land development development has changed from back in that 70s, 80s, 90s to what it is now. Give us some some more details there. Yeah, so a, a key thing that people would generally see is that over time, lots have got smaller. Of course. Um, so They've also got flatter as well. They have, they have. And so there, there's a couple of reasons for that. So obviously the cost of land is expensive and developers typically work out on a cost per square metre. The bigger the parcel of land, the more square metres of land, the higher the cost. It used to be that when you look through areas, you know, going back through like Inglewood, Dianella, large lots, and there were, the retaining was actually done on the house itself. That's you right. Know, you'll see the old, uh, in some of those old areas, the limestone quite often the limestone under the blocks house. under the house. Yep. So that's now changed, and the limestone retaining is actually done at the lot boundary. So when people end up with a, with a flat lot on which to build their house. So, Do you uh, think that's a positive change? It's a positive change in that... It saves people a lot of money at the building stage. Uh, when you look at what the site works costs are, if you go and build a house on a, on a sloping block of land and you've then got to go and get the builder to do the site works, you could run into the multiple tens of thousands of dollars just to get to the point where you've got a flat building pad. Whereas when you go and buy a block of land in a usual multi-stage subdivision, uh, it's generally a flat block of land. That it's a more cohesive arrangement. Straight. Yeah, it does, yeah. So it also takes up less land. So it means that you're not losing land on your property through slopes or, or anything like that. So uh, that's probably the positive. The negative I see, and it's just a personal opinion, is that it lacks a bit of diversity in mm. the product that's being delivered. So you drive through some of the old areas and you have some houses with undercroft garages in sloping sites where we don't really see any of that anymore. We think about Double View as a perfect example of a suburb that is naturally very slopey. Yes. Uh, and the views are exceptional. And a lot of them, they sit on those types of foundations you spoke about where underneath the floorboards, there is a fantastic amount of storage that you don't get these days given the fact we also don't build basements. That's correct. It's all geared around helping to save 
purchases money by minimizing site works costs to the home builder mm. at the end of the day because it's much cheaper for that work to be done at the subdivision development stage when you've got the big earth moving machinery there yeah you know, you've got your stonemason contractors there building your limestone walls and building them in mass rather than as individual uh, smaller jobs are you a fan more of the avenues with a metric system you're very um, city of sterling like estates where it's obviously very much right angles everywhere or you're more of a fan of the bends and the cul-de-sacs and the ways and all new ways of developing land estates i'm actually a fan of of developers developing land to suit their natural topography you see a lot of areas where the layouts sort of being contrived yeah like a, a flashy sort of site lends itself to that square uh, as you said you know that, that square type development where you've got very regular lots and that whereas perhaps a sloping site might lend itself to something a little bit different you know more curved road for the back of the envelope feasibility if, if we were going to start doing some feasibilities on realestate.com before coming and speaking to someone like you for further assistance do you have any direction you can give the listeners today on a per lot basis what it might cost to do all of the subdivision works from purchase to sale as an average it can vary so much there is no average because of the variability in the ground conditions and as i mentioned before about you know the slope land groundwater clay you know some sites are sandy some sites are clay my recommendation would be to get advice from an engineering professional or development professional on costs of land uh, and developing land at the time you're looking at those at those projects so much like yourself Trent you've you've started off with the smaller subdivisions one to two lots and you've got a good handle on that and now moving into the sphere of looking at potentially larger subdivisions so you'll get a feel for over time but the costs can vary significantly so i think i'd be remiss to come up with a number to give to any of your listeners out there what would it not get cheaper then around 40 to fifty thousand dollars a lot what's the most expensive you've seen 150 to 200 per lot wow that's that's exceptional and and those are created by really just what's underneath the ground and distance to services yeah the nature of the development there's some subdivisions where yeah you might have to build two or three kilometers of road just to get to your subdivision so all that gets amortized into your cost per lot that's really why you need to seek professional advice when you're looking at doing some sort of development fun question yep if i'm building my own road and it's going to be gazetted do i get to decide the name of that road all road names have to get approved by the geographic naming committee um so they sound like a fun group of people (laughs) they do yeah (laughs) so uh, we don't get involved in that too much but i think you can put forward suggestions but ultimately they're approved by the geographic naming committee because you certainly do see especially amongst the new estates you look through and uh, I can correlate a lot of names to maybe someone's old family name or the person who used to own this market garden back in the day. But then you'll have other suburbs that are clearly got a theme. Back in the day, you think about a suburb like Carlisle, Star, yes. Mercury, Mars, Solar Way. All these streets have, have a theme. You go up into the city of Joondalup, a lot of those have oceanic and bird names. Suburb like Beachborough, it's got a lot of uh, local trees and bushes. Yes. Uh, so it's interesting how those estates have themes. But if we were going to build our own land estate that might have just two or three roads in it, it'd be great to know that maybe one day it might not be someone's surname, but you can certainly uh, pick your own theme. Yeah, we've certainly worked on on projects. I mean, Burns Beach subdivision, for example, is uh, all the street names are related to famous beaches around the world. I've done another subdivision recently up in the Lansdale area where the names are, are based on you know, ancestors of the people who lived in the area. 
Um, so generally, it's my understanding they won't let you name roads after people who are still alive. Yep. But if they've passed, a little bit on, gratuitous, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. But I believe, yeah, if it's uh, if they've passed on, then their name can be used in some instances. Chris Bitmade, Tayavak, I really appreciate your time, mate. It's been a great intro into land development. There's so much more we can speak about, but I think this has been a good 25 minutes where we can uh, just get people's juices starting to flow in the brains, and I'm sure a lot of people will be hopping straight onto realestate.com looking for land sizes, probably two hectares and more and seeing what they can be carving up. So thanks a lot for your time and for everyone listening, if you're looking down this pathway, uh, I think you won't find an engineer more suited to help you out. Cheers, Chris. Thanks, Trent. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!